Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with us, as always, is a man who knows when a deal is too good to be true. Mr. Joseph Wren. You have no idea how appropriate that statement is. Good evening, all of you gruesome people. So uh, before we dive into this next episode, uh, we need to issue one minor correction. In a previous episode, we were talking about Fritz Lang's M. Uh, Our intrepid producer, Joseph, had accidentally mistaken uh, Fritz Lang for Franz Kafka. He described a film called Fritz Lang's It's a Wonderful Life. And I thought Fritz Lang made a version of It's a Wonderful Life. How'd that happen? But whatever, (laughs) that's fine. I'll check it out. I like Fritz Lang. Turns out the film he was uh, misremembering was a indie gem. You can call it that. An indie gem called Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life. Very different people, uh, Fritz Lang and Franz Kafka. To be fair, it has been a long time since I looked at the DVD cover. Uh, I do stand by my statement, though. This is one of my favorite versions of It's a Wonderful Life because it is so weird. Um, This is one of those $5 special compilations of, yeah, this DVD set has a few horror films on it, but then there's one gem. This has several gems on it. Um... One word, Lucas. I guess it's two words because it's the title of the short film. The deal is something to be seen because it will never be unseen. And that is all I'm going to say at this time. We might have to do a watch along on a future <laughs> live stream just so that people can hear your reaction to it. I'm not a fan of reaction videos, but I am a fan of commentaries. Mm. And that is something worth recording the first time out. We'll keep that in mind. But uh, let's let's move into our uh, appropriate subject matter, shall we? Uh, 300 years ago, uh, I was a child in the 1980s. I grew up in a family that had somehow managed to own a VCR despite our relative means. We watched a lot of movies. And living in St. Louis, Missouri in the 1980s, I have a very distinct set of memories about corner video stores that, that kind of dotted every neighborhood. These places were a veritable Shangri-La for a young, nerdy kid like myself. These lacked the polish of later video chains like Blockbuster or Family Video. So yeah, they'd have some copy of your big Hollywood flicks. You know, you could get copies of Die Hard. But they would also be stuffed to the gills with these oddball B-flicks, some imports, and a lot of uh, family-unfriendly features. My memory is painted with the covers of movies like Death Stalker, American Ninja, Demon Wind, and Cheap Transfers of the Night of the Living Dead. Uh, Joe, I don't know if you remember these or not, because, you know, where there's a little gap in our ages, but do you remember the original VHS case for Frank Frank Hennenlotter's Frankenhooker? It had a little speaker and a button, and when you pressed (laughs) the button, it would belch out the line from the movie, Want a date? Want a date? I can say with certainty that was not a film that I was looking for at my local video (laughs) store, but I definitely share some of that nostalgia and those good feelings for the video store. I think that's something that's lacking even when it became more commercialized and you had the big names like Blockbuster. Up until the last decade, I'm going to say within the last five years, it's probably been longer than that by now. There was a family video not that far from my house. Yeah, there was a fa- there's actually uh, the remains of a family video, um, maybe two or three miles from where I currently live. It's now actually a very successful 
uh, kind of upscale liquor store, which is, you know, it's, it's a sad transition to see the last of the last of the old video stores go. But yeah, you know, I've always been a movie geek. And since my mid teens, a horror movie geek in specific. For all of my love of modern films, a lot of my memories are of these movies, and they're kind of stuck in the aesthetics of the late 70s up through like the mid-90s. A lot of these movies, you know, they just have a very specific look. And in some regards, it's emblematic of the creative tastes and styles of the time, sure, but a lot of that has to do with available technology. For those of you who were born after the 1980s, we should probably explain some of these points for context. In pop culture, the 1980s are often depicted as these, like, neon-bright, anodyne, clean shopping malls. You know, there's a lot of synth music and things like that. It's it's very, very colorful in a kind of uh, macabre way. Or things are depicted as the gritty New York heart, dirt-strewn, porn theaters on every corner, just, just dripping a dark atmosphere, very noir still. Sure, some of that was true aesthetically, but for those of us who grew up in the slowly decaying rust belt of the Midwest, there is a different side. Most of my memories of that time period, uh, in a day-to-day sense, are decorated in beige, tan, brown, and gray. For some reason, there's a lot of cream and yellow paint on the walls in these houses in my memories of that time period. And I don't know how much of that is from like actual paint color decisions or just stains from cigarette smoke because people still smoked inside their home at that time. And when we are talking about how movies looked then, we have to remember that digital video and then later on high def video, they were barely a gleam in the eyes of directors everywhere. Film and film stock ruled the day and the effect of VHS technology now made movies possible to to create and take home. The combo of 16 millimeter film transferred to VHS tape plays a huge impact on how effective those films ended up being. I've talked before, uh, for instance, about my love of full moon features and how I think it's still as a company, one of the most interesting groups of film in the horror genre. And many of those films, in my opinion, still hold up and look pretty good even now. But when you watch them on a VHS tape, especially on like a bootleg VHS that's maybe a little degraded, that the sound is off and it just looks funny somehow, it does something to the feeling of the film. And you'll have to pardon me if I sound maybe a little too snobby about this, but I'm incredibly critical of attempts at retro 80s anything. There's a line between effective and ineffective homage that so many things just miss. Film, like all other forms of art and media, are in part influenced by their era. And something made in the 2000s or later, intending to feel like any other era, ultimately just kind of fails. I am not convinced it can be helped. But sometimes, just sometimes, it ends up working. The title of tonight's episode no doubt spoiled what we're talking about. We're talking about Ty West's House of the Devil. Of all the films of the last 20 years that have tried to use the aesthetics of the 1980s, this one might be the most effective. But I want to ask some questions before we get started. Does a film set in the 1980s have to feel like it's from the 1980s in order to work? Another question. 
Could Ty West have set this film in any other era and had it work? Finally, I'm thinking just about how homage works. I'm interested in that line between good and bad homage, more specifically, how nostalgia and homage are used to positive and negative ends. But in order for us to do that, we need to talk about the plot of The House of the Devil. The film opens to a title card. Joe, uh, would you read that for us, please? During the 1980s, over 70% of American adults believed in the existence of abusive, satanic cults. Another 30% rationalized the lack of evidence due to government cover-ups. The following is based on true, unexplained events. If you've listened to our episode about the blood on Satan's claw, you are well aware of my feelings on the satanic panic. And if you haven't listened to that episode, why don't you go listen to that now, or at least cue it up to listen to next. Back on track. This single title card basically sets up the entirety of our film and begins to set up the most powerful tool in this movie's arsenal, which we'll talk about momentarily. The film proceeds to introduce us to Samantha, a young college student who is looking to rent a house off campus. She's found one that looks like it's a great fit, but it's more expensive than she had expected. She decides to look for an off-campus gig to pay for her first round of bills. Through an ad, she meets Mr. Ullman, who offers her a simple job. Keep an eye on the house for a few hours so he and his wife can go out. The only thing she'll need, even need to be concerned about is the Ullman's live-in mother, but she'll be sleeping upstairs. And yet, there's something off. There's something more going on here. It's the night of a lunar eclipse, and there is something so uncanny about the Almonds in their house. It's needless to say that all hell is about to break loose, and the only question is, how is Samantha going to survive? Is there a point in the film where the mother brings out a walrus suit and asks her to wear it? it we are not discussing the plot of Tusk. <laughs> Maybe some other time but we are not discussing the plot of Tusk. Jokes aside, it's a tale as old as horror movies. An eerie house, an unusual family, a desperate heroine, and a profound existential threat. We've all seen movies playing with some or all of these elements. This movie works in a big way, but getting to how it works is something of a messy issue. For instance, the cast. This movie features some horror heavy hitters like Tom Noonan from Last Action Hero, Robocop 2, Manhunter, uh, as well as he, I believe, played Frankenstein's monster in The Monster Squad. Uh, Mary Warnov, who is in uh, Chopping Mall, Terror Vision, and the music video for Suicidal Tendencies, uh, Institutionalized, great song. This was something of an early uh, film for Jocelyn Donahue, the main actress, who you may have seen in Insidious Chapter 2 as well as Doctor Sleep. And finally, uh, we have to mention that Greta Gerwig is in this film. Uh, her, this was an early career role for her. If her name, Greta Gerwig, is ringing a bell, she wrote and directed Lady Bird, which was nominated for five Oscars, three BAFTAs, and three SAG Awards. She's also a co-writer and director for the upcoming Barbie movie, which... Feels like a weird move, but her career's filled with all sorts of weird moves. If I've learned anything from video games, it's whenever you try to make a Barbie anything other than actual Barbie, it's going to fail. You know, if I were still at a point in my life of irresponsible drinking, I'd just get drunk and go see it. But I just, I can't, I don't think I can do that anymore. 
So we have this great cast for this movie. Uh, the set looks great too. Uh, these sprawling college campuses, a sinister old house, this grimy little pizzeria. Uh, the score and the soundtrack are a perfect mix of like 80s radio hits and ominous but classic horror music. Uh, and the film has this absolutely great look. It's shot on period-appropriate 16mm uh, with period-correct camera movements, freeze frames, camera zooms. It looks like a movie from the 70s and 80s. So this is a recipe for a near-perfect bit of horror, right? Well, that depends. Critically, this movie did not do great on its release. Uh, it cost approximately $900,000 to make, and it only uh, made a gross worldwide of a, just about $102,000 after uh, being released in two, 2009. That's not good. Yeah, that's an abysmal return by any measure. But this movie has a pretty devoted fan base now. It's not quite a cult classic, but it's been on Shudder for years. It has this uh, incredible coverage from uh, Joe Bob Briggs on The Last Drive-In. And, you know, for a lot of horror fans, that's like pretty high marks, right? That's the highest mark. That's the only mark we need. <laughs> if there's one person who can stand up and say, I have watched more horror movies than you, it's probably Joe Bob. I mean, without question. I mean, we we, we are all uh, boys playing in the shadow of, of Joe Bob. But the there's a problem with The House of the Devil, and it's where it loses its audience. It's pacing. This movie moves at a glacial pace. Clocking in at a little over 90 minutes, this movie feels like it is much, much longer. In terms of like the horrific events of this movie, very little actually happens until like the second and third act. The tension is built from the title card and it just never breaks. Depending on your personal taste, this movie is either a masterclass of timing and pace or it's an overwrought snooze fest with a little payoff. And amongst horror fans I know personally, there doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground between these two camps. I'd like to hear what our listeners have to say about that. If you have a strong opinion in either direction, uh, let us know by contacting the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com or go to Twitter provided it's still alive at this point and reach us at fright underscore lab underscore pod and tell us which camp you are with that i keep waiting for you to tell me the rest of the plot to beyond the black rainbow because it sounds like that's what you were doing for the past paragraph you know i've got to be honest with you i've seen beyond the black rainbow about five or six times and i'm not entirely convinced i know the plot of behind the beyond the black rainbow that's because nothing happens it's a weird guy who has a <laughs> has a female in a room and he watches her and then at the end of the movie he goes through some psychedelic trip where he mutilates his body a la Event Horizon or Hellraiser and then nothing happens he slips on a banana peel and he's dead yeah but <laughs> <laughs> but the colors Joe the colors I mean uh, that's a lot of the reason I watched that movie Ty West is one of those directors who is really really good at what he does. The guy is just undeniably talented and well-loved by his fans. He has a hell of a lot of success just in the last few years alone. Uh, he, he's been responsible for the A24 Gems X and Pearl, not to mention a segment in the original VHS uh, called Second Honeymoon, which is a standout in a series with a very uneven history. That's where I know this name from. Uh-huh. So, I mean, just as a quick sidebar, Joe... 
I'm going to have to at least write one episode about the VHS series, aren't I? I think they are underappreciated for what they are. When you hear VHS, what are you thinking? You're thinking found footage, 2000s, shaky cam. It's not actual actors. It's people pretending that stuff is going on around them. That's not what VHS is. Yeah, and... You know, it's it's a hit or miss bag across multiple multiple movies, but yeah, I'm gonna get to that one of so these is days. Creep Show. It it's a good hit, and then it's a hit or miss as you move forward. Yeah. Okay. So back to Ty West. West is not just a director, but he's an editor, a writer, a producer. And while you can argue about whether or not auteur theory is valid or not, you can't argue that West is not an auteur in the classic sense. He set down his vision for a movie like this and ruthlessly adhered to it. His vision of the 1980s was, at least in my opinion, mostly correct in a visual sense. From hairstyles to clothes to set dressing, he set down a wholly believable world with the House of the Devil. I find myself talking a lot about the aesthetics of horror media, and I don't want to be mistaken as someone who thinks that um, horror is just an aesthetic thing. I am, however, someone who finds himself extremely frustrated with the surface-level look at retro art and media. Ty West absolutely went the distance in making this movie as close to a 1980s horror flick as possible. But does it work? Well, sort of. I think that The House of the Devil is something of a mixed bag. The plot is, in many regards, locked into a time and place. So much of this movie is altered significantly in the absence of like smartphones and internet connectivity. If this movie were set in any other era, our heroine Samantha would just simply just get a job like driving for Uber or DoorDash and not need the creepy Ullman family to pay her bills. And the 1980s were a lot different in terms of filmmaking from the technology used up to what was considered acceptable in terms of like pacing and action. This movie shares more in common with the Peter Maydak masterpiece, The Changeling from 1980, or Clive Barker's Hellraiser. Pacing-wise, it's it's more those than, say, Taurus Trap. But you gotta remember that Taurus Trap still has a slower pace than the horror movies of the 90s or even later. So the pacing is more in line with the style in terms of paying homage, even if the pacing is admittedly exhausting. And that's the word that I think can be used to describe the House of the Devil in brief description. It is a film custom-engineered to exhaust you. In many ways, that's a desirable thing for a horror movie to do. Horror movies are still supposed to be horrific on some level, and we all know a few good scares can really take the energy out of you. You know, when I first watched this movie, I didn't particularly enjoy it. Not that I had any real arguments against it, but that I had been on kind of a like folk horror kick and was watching a lot of non-English language horror at the time. So it just didn't do anything for me. I found the aesthetic to be lovingly done, but I also found it sort of overly constricting. In subsequent rewatches, I've grown an affection for this movie and think that the rigid time and placeness is part of how it works. That said, I really want someone to transfer this onto VHS and then copy it onto another VHS tape. I would love to know if the movie's use of 16mm film would give you that same unsettling imperfection as the bootleg horror films I grew up with. In our episode on The Blood on Satan's Claw, we discussed 
the satanic panic of the 1980s and 1990s. This just keeps coming up, doesn't it? Yeah, and I don't want to spend like an excessive amount of time on that subject, but it's pretty hard to ignore it as a cultural force. One could also probably argue that the satanic panic on some level impacted films produced from the early to mid-80s onwards. A quick stroll through Shudder's catalog of films from that era, uh, at least as they're released in the U.S., could be rewarding in that regard. So, I do think that The House of the Devil succeeds at being an homage, even if it depicts the sort of metaphysics of a modern witch hunt in its plot. There were no massive satanic conspiracies going on, as we all know. But there was absolutely people who believed there were, and the House of the Devil does correctly depict that fact. If we agree that this movie is a good homage to an era and its aesthetics, what then qualifies a bad homage? There are a lot of examples. Um, The one that immediately comes to mind is, and I know this is going to annoy more than a few of you, is Stranger Things. The depiction of the time period it's rooted in and the relation to the media it has is so incorrect and misleading. Like, look, I know that Master of Puppets by Metallica and Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush were pushed back into pop consciousness by that show. I don't know if that's a bad thing, but I will say that it might also lead to an incorrect understanding of that time period. I was a kid back then, but my memory of that time period is awfully sharp. Back then, Metallica was not the sort of pop cultural marketing machine it is now. Lars Ulrich had no power, and I wish we could go back to that time period, you know? (laughs) I will never forgive him after watching some kind of monster. I'm sorry. It was terrible. And Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush, it's an undeniably well-written song, probably a classic. It didn't chart terribly high at the time. Fiction need not be accurate and faithful reproductions of every fact. But we have to be very careful about how we let fiction form our views of reality. Now, I know Joe's going to laugh at me here, but I don't mean to be a snob. No, really, I, I don't. For the record, I don't think that Stranger Things is a bad show, and I don't think that fans are bad for enjoying it. I assure you, there are movies and TV shows that I enjoy which could convince you to just thoroughly lambaste me for enjoying. But we're all adults here. And as such, we have to say that there is room for interpretation. I personally found the handful of Stranger Things episodes I watched to be just bland, but also like equally annoyingly overcluttered. I know that people have memories of pop cultural ephemera from that era, which are just overwhelmingly fond. But I also think that for us to enjoy that sort of thing, we have to overlook a lot of details from that era that that just frankly sucked. Look, I loved Transformers and Voltron and He-Man and G.I. Joe. I grew up with all of that stuff. But, well, all of those things are glorified ads to sell us fake plastic toys. And then also rot our teeth out with sugary breakfast cereals. Pop cultural properties are often engineered to make money and not much more. And I can't fault actors or writers looking to make a living in this world or people in marketing trying to do the same. We live in a hard world and you've got to do that sort of thing to get by. But I am always so surprised at the lack of discussion in that arena when we are talking about what is supposed to be our seemingly collective nostalgia. I guess I'm just a curmudgeon and can't help but think about how nostalgia can be kind of weaponized in that regard designed to bleed you more of your hard-earned dollars. 
We've gotten to this point in all media where the 80s is nostalgic because the people who grew up then, they have money to spend. That's why you're seeing the trends that never change. Music, television, film, collecting, even video games. We are the ones who look back on that era and say, I remember this, this was cool, and somebody's now marketing it to you at a price you can afford so that you'll continue consuming. It's a spiral, it's a loop, it will never change. Need I remind you all of that time in the 90s when bell bottoms came back into style? Yeah, you know, and here's the thing though, right? Like, we have to remember that at the end there's a profit margin to be made, you know? Like, I I get it. There are a lot of people who are listening to the show who are probably huge fans of Marvel movies. Me, Marvel movies are a big reason why I've checked out of a lot of modern cinema in a big way. I like what they did with the Avengers, but I'm slowly checking out because the formula is showing its age. Well, yeah. And, you know, on top of it, there's some other elements. Like those of us who grew up on Marvel comics, like I, like I, one of the reasons I kind of started to duck out of comics when I got uh, to a particular age was the Infinity Gauntlet and the Infinity War. I read those comics. I never wanted them to be movies. Like uh, There was just no way you were going to film them. It's amongst the many problems that H.P. Lovecraft has, he's impossible to film. <laughs> well, well, again, one of these days I'm going to fall down the well and do an H.P. Lovecraft thing. I don't know how or when. Don't fall down the well. That's where Cthulhu is. Hey. But, you know, one of the things I run into here is that that nostalgia is being marketed to you because, like you pointed out, there are people who will pay for it. I feel like that nostalgia marketing might go away if we stop paying for it. And I know what you're thinking. You know, Lucas, you talk about your nostalgia and your feelings to this audience. Where's the difference? And, you know, anyone making that criticism isn't wrong about it either. I acknowledge that there is something maybe a little hypocritical in my criticisms here. A lot of my love of horror media is rooted in being a little kid in a neighborhood video store. You know, I miss the smell of freshly cleaned carpets and popcorn from an aging popcorn machine. I miss the strange, uneven floors of the, the of all of my neighborhood stores. I can't remember those stores' names, but I can remember their floor plans and their insufficient lighting. Intentions, as it turns out, matter. I don't think that Ty West was intending to do anything but make a movie that sells enough tickets to justify its budget. I would also have a significantly difficult time believing, given his output, that he was trying to like reify the ideas of the satanic panic in his works. I think he knew they were fake and wasn't trying to make people believe it. You can choose to experience the house of the devil on a completely surface level. You can also choose to really examine the context it comes from and exists in. Though, I won't fault you for not allowing it to make yourself nuts the way it's made me nuts. Talk more about the experience of the video store. This is something every nostalgia nerd, see what I did there, has been talking about for decades. And it's common to talk about the experience and look back on it with fond memories because it was a time where you went to the store. Start. You're a consumer. You are looking to rent movies. You're paying a fee to take something home with you for a undisclosed period of time ranging from 
two days that I can remember up to seven days at one point. Didn't Blockbuster near the end do month-long rentals or am I remembering that way inflated? I don't want to spend too much time talking about video stores. I have an idea for an episode talking about that subject or at least kind of tangential to that subject. What I will say is this, like one, I don't remember if Blockbuster had month-long rentals. They, <laughs> they very well may have. It wouldn't surprise me at the end there. One of the things that I, I can say that I, I haven't really brought up anywhere else is that, you know, we were talking about the way that, well, I can now afford to buy Transformers figures, ergo Transformers figures are back on sale. There is a part of me that is probably living out some childhood fantasy of finally being able to rent all the terrible movies my parents utterly refused to let me rent. But I'm also thinking that a big part of it is the way our aesthetics get connected back to stuff, right? A lot of my tastes and interests and, uh, I don't know, long-term projects in a way, I am thinking about a lot of those crazy uh, video covers. I am thinking about the aesthetics of the video store. But I also think that by the end there, as, uh, you know, family video and then a local chain Hollywood video and then um, a Blockbuster, as those started going out of, out of uh, business and out of style to an extent, there was something sort of sad about going in there and knowing that, None of this would be here in a few years. I think we all saw the writing on the wall a long time back. You know, uh, just kind of wrap up on this point. I will say I miss the feeling of the video store more than anything else when you get down to it. Is it a great model? No, I think video stores, especially stuff like Blockbuster, you know, big chains could actually be really limiting in terms of chain, uh, in terms of this chain can limit what you watch and what you're actually getting into. For me, I will say that I think the presence of like big streaming services like Netflix and Shutter, and then smaller free ones, uh, Crackle, Tubi, etc. I I, I want to talk about those in depth in another episode, but I think it's allowing us to have our own tastes more more readily by by having fewer gatekeepers. We can we can be better build our taste. And that's kind of a delicate balance to walk, right? A big part for me it, with this show is I never want to be a tastemaker. I don't want anyone to say, well, Lucas says this movie is good, so it must be good. No, absolutely not. Watch what you want to watch and love what you love. I, I'm not here to tell you what's good or not. I am here to ask questions, though. And that's that's where I find myself. Yeah, it's, it's an awkward place. And that's the reason I ask the question. I don't want to spoil the future conversation. <laughs> sure, I know it's sure. coming. Yeah. But that is something that the video stores were, that bookstores are, and that streaming services, the way we consume visual and audio media today could be. But we're stuck in a loop of, I'm a creator, so I need to push my shit the video stores were curators, and that's the difference between a tastemaker and someone who watches movies, tells you about them, what they think, and makes recommendations because, you know what, guys? It's Wednesday night. I've got nothing to do. I want to watch a flick. Lucas, I don't know <laughs> what I should watch. Can you recommend something to me? You get it in whiskey with all alcohol, to be honest with you. You get it everywhere else. But because that store doesn't exist anymore, the curators are gone. And that is something that is lacking 
And I can't believe this is the movie that is bringing up this topic for me. But when you talk about VHS and you talk about going to your local video store and making a rental, making a purchase sometimes even, that's what I remember. I remember, have you seen this? Yeah, it wasn't very good, but you should still watch it. You know, it's something that like I, I was thinking about the other day. I was trying to describe this show to someone who was uh, maybe not a podcast person. And it dawned on me that one of the things I was accidentally doing, um, for those of us who had the opportunity to go to video stores or had the opportunity to go to a good music store, like we have a very, very good music store here in St. Louis called Vintage Vinyl. It's just, it's killer. It's a, kind of the last of the old school record, record stores. space, man. Come on. Yeah. But for those of us who who had that experience, I've realized I've kind of accidentally become this thing I always really admired. And that is the person behind the counter at the movie store or the videos, you know, or the, the video store or the record store or whatever, who's standing behind the counter who says, oh, you just picked up the Dario Argento joint. If you like Argento, man, you should check out Mario Bava. Bava's killer. Now, Argento is good, but Bava, man, you can see the influence on Argento and so on and so forth. The guy who the guy or girl, I, I got very lucky actually in my life in that regard um, to have those people to push you towards stuff and that you end up going, Oh wow, this is amazing. This is truly good. Having that person to hang around and give you some, some advice maybe, or some guidance again, not a tastemaker, but a kind of weird psychopomp in the underworld of media. You know, I, I realized I was accidentally doing that to an extent now i'm not going to try to uh claim the mantle of any such thing but i will say it is kind of a curious thing to uh, start doing that accidentally so all of that aside that leads me to ask what do you think is the house of the devil a successful homage or not does its maniacal insistence on being rooted in a time and place help or hurt and are there any films like it that you think we should watch let us know. You can contact us at the Fright Lab Podcast at gmail.com. You should also follow us on Twitter, provided that the Twitter servers have not ignited into flames, at Fright underscore lab underscore pod. You know, we've been working hard at getting our shows integrated into all the major platforms, so you can now find us on all your major, major platforms. And would you do us a favor? Just one little thing. Share our show on social media or with any fans of horror podcasts or horror podcasts you happen to know. Word of mouth matters, and we'll keep making these if you'll keep listening. Joe, where can the fans of the Fright Lab find your other work? You've heard me talk about music on this show, and I want to remind everyone, if you're a fan of heavy music, you need to listen to all the podcasts we are creating at DiscussMetal.com. You want to know what it sounds like? You're listening to The Fright Lab. Welcome to Discuss Metal Studios. This is the sound of our podcasts. What are we talking about? We're talking about all the metal bands, your favorite bands, my favorite bands. And when we all get together in the room, we share music together. We're talking about metal topics like Satanic Panic. It keeps coming up, so why not bring it up? <laughs> But what I really want everyone to do is wherever you listen to this show, I want you to find the place where you can leave a thumbs up, where you can leave a comment, where you can leave a five-star review. And I want you to do that. I want you to send us an email. I want to hear from you guys on Twitter. We want to know what you're thinking because we really like doing this show and we want to hear from you. I know there's a website coming. I'm sure there's going to be a Patreon coming. So we're not here for the money. 
We're here for the movies. We're here for the fun and enjoyment of watching the films. And horror movies are something that go well with heavy metal. So listen to all the Fright Lab shows. Listen to all the podcasts at DiscussMetal.com. And, you know, one last thing. You know, we, we do this in every episode, but we're going to do it again because we mean it. If you are making music that is horror adjacent, be that heavy metal, punk, industrial, or if you're doing some like next level dark ambient stuff, we really want to hear what you're doing and we would like to play it on the show. If you are doing that, uh, reach out to us at our Gmail address that we've cited earlier or our Twitter address. Let us know. We would be happy to feature your music on our show as well as to play it for our audience. And as always, one last time or one more time. Let's try that again. That fucking didn't read right. As always. One more time, The Fright Lab is written, researched, and co-hosted by me, Lucas Yoakum. It is co-hosted, produced, and beaten roughly into shape by Joseph Wren. We appreciate every single one of you who listens, and you will hear from us again very, very soon. It didn't come from hell. It came from Spotify. (laughs) God, there's so many fucking bands that are like that, too. Jesus Christ. Right? Right?